What prompted the creation of the Federal Reserve, and why do we know so little about its origins? Roger Lowenstein joins us to discuss his new book, America's Bank. Every bank uh, stood alone, and whenever there was uh, any bit of stress or um, uh, unease in the financial system or in the economy, which happened then as it does today, instead of there being an institution to step in and provide credit, there would be a, uh, a panic. What are the roots of America's special relationship with Israel? Scott Anderson is here to discuss his review of Doomed to Succeed by Dennis Ross. Anytime there's any little overture, any movement towards some, you know, the beginning of the beginning of the beginning of a, of a possible solution, both sides would just throw all these impediments in the way. Alexander Alto will be here with an update from the literary world and Greg Coles has bestseller news. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. Standing in for Pamela Paul, I'm Barl Sagal. We're joined now by Roger Lowenstein, author of America's Bank, an important new book on the Federal Reserve, reviewed on this week's cover by former Treasury Secretary Richard Rubin, who calls the book, quote, required reading. Hi, Roger. Good morning. So the review makes the point quite persuasively, I think, that, you know, most of us have at least passing knowledge of the intellectual debates that gave rise to the Constitution. But when it comes to the circumstances that led to the creation of the Federal Reserve, we're, we're clueless. Um Tell us a little bit about what was happening that precipitated the creation of the Fed. Well, in in many senses, it paralleled the conflicts that precipitated the Constitution of the United States, where uh, there was this great conflict between people who wanted local control, uh, state governments, as in under the Articles of Confederation, and uh, people such as, say, Alexander Hamilton, who wanted a strong central government. In the case of the Fed, and obviously we're speaking about um, the financial dimensions of the country, uh, America, unlike uh, every other industrialized country, and now we're speaking about the very early uh, 20th century, the first decade of the 20th century, had a very disorganized financial system. Uh, in all the countries of Europe, there was a central bank, and, and the central bank played the role that we've become accustomed to in the modern Federal Reserve of, of being a backstop for the individual banks uh, and, in a larger sense, for the economies of their respective countries. In the United States, we didn't have any such institution. Every bank uh, stood alone, and whenever there was uh, any bit of stress or um, uh, unease in the financial system or in the economy, which happened then as it does today, instead of there being an institution to step in and provide credit, there would be a, uh, a panic. Uh, sometimes there were money panics when the banks literally ran out of money. Very often there would be a very uh, severe depression. Uh, a number of reformers, uh, uh, mainly uh, younger bankers on uh, Wall Street, uh, some economists, and so on, began to uh, lobby for some institution like a central bank in the United States, but they ran into tremendous opposition, mm-hmm. uh, both by people who uh, then, as today, were very fearful of uh, big banking uh, organizations. Uh, banks did not have a good reputation then, partly because there were so many panics, and also people like in the colonial period and like today who were very fearful of a big uh, federal agency. And the the combination, if you put uh, a bank together with a a big government agency for a central bank, it was to many people the worst of both worlds. They were very fearful of a big government entity uh, controlling their financial lives. There was also some powerful dissension even amongst the people that thought we needed, you know, a powerful sort of centralized financial system, right? Yes, because, you know, uh, some people thought that... um, we should have scattered um, reserve banks around the country, uh, much as, say, since the United States was just a vast territory. In those days, 
given the transportation system that we had then, it was even vaster. So uh, they thought we should have uh, a reserve bank in one part, another part, you know, perhaps as many as 20 around the country. Uh, others thought uh, much more in the Alexander Hamilton strong government line that we should have a strong central institution um, in Washington. There was also quite a debate about who would run this institution. Mm-hmm. In fact, the early drafts of the Federal Reserve Act called for it to be run essentially by bankers, that federally appointed people, that politically appointed people, and in fact the government would run the banking industry, run a private industry, was quite shocking to uh, most people in the early 20th century. It would do. Remember, this is a time before we had all these government agencies uh, running or supervising private industry. And um, this is quite an innovation brought about by Woodrow Wilson. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us, so there's Wilson as a key key player. Who are some of the other personalities involved? Who are the other framers of this act? Yeah, and I just want to say a word about Wilson, because the Wilson we, we frequently remember right. yeah. in, in history is the somewhat tired um, Austere president who oversaw the end of World War One, and, of course, his failed effort uh, to get the United States to join the League of Nations and, and sign the Treaty of Versailles. But the, the Wilson that we see in this period is right after his inauguration. He's only three years after being president of Princeton University. He's um, very familiar with the debates because he was an economics professor himself, a student and admirer of Alexander Hamilton. And, you know, we talk a lot about Lyndon Johnson and his uh, today and another president and his forcefulness and his skill at moving the Congress where he wanted to. Wilson took over a Congress and a party that was very divided. And uh, you see by dint of his personality, his persuasiveness, his eagerness to control, and his understanding of the issues and of the constitutional process, uh, a very different Wilson, a Wilson who was able to get a very tough and um, controversial bill uh, through the Congress and in a way that didn't sacrifice uh, any of the fundamental uh, issues. You asked about some of the, um, the other key figures. Uh, some of them are known to us, and some of them aren't. Carter Glass, uh, a representative from Virginia, uh, is uh, frequently referred to as the father of the Federal Reserve Act, and many people know him, or at least know his last name from the Glass-Steagall Act, which he authored two decades later in the shadows of the Great Depression. This was a much uh, younger Carter Glass who was uh, seeking to make his way. He was a a very conservative Democrat, I think we'd say today, um, somewhat in the George Wallace mold. He had come to power uh, having crafted the uh, Constitution in Virginia, which actually disenfranchised African-American voters. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the Democratic Party in the South uh, in the early 1900s. He was, for that reason, very afraid of a federal role in the Federal Reserve or anything else because he equated a uh, federal role with an end to segregation. Uh, and actually, when he first brought the Federal Reserve Act, which he drafted to Wilson, it called for 20 different uh, reserve banks around the country um, with no federal uh, link at all. Wilson um, wouldn't hear that. But Glass, uh, along with his um, flaws, was an incredibly tenacious fighter uh, for the bill, and he's certainly one of the main uh, characters of the book. Uh, Paul Warburg is probably the hero of the story. Who's pretty little known, I would think, right? To people Warburg who... is, you know, some people may know the firm Warburg Pincus today, and he's uh, an antecedent to that firm. He was a German Jew, a financier, born in Hamburg, who uh, emigrated to this country in 1902, was quite learned in finance and particularly international finance, and was horrified at the uh, lack of sophistication of the American financial system. 
when he began to, quite soon after his arrival, he began to suggest to people that America should adopt uh, some sort of institution like the ones he had seen uh, and worked with back in Europe. And he was quickly informed that um, he shouldn't talk about this because the idea was so unpopular. In fact, um, his uh, brother-in-law, who had uh, been here uh, many years uh, longer than Warburg had, uh, told him in no uncertain terms that this would this would really ruin his career. Mm-hmm. But Warburg was, um, I call him a simmering volcano. He had this passion for improving the system, couldn't help himself, and really rather remarkably uh, was able to um, uh, influence and bring about an intellectual change on Wall Street and then in the body public, and, and uh, ultimately uh, became an American citizen, in fact, was one of the uh, governors in the very first uh, Federal Reserve. So as the Fed exists today, would it be recognizable to the framers? Everything is different than it was yeah. 100 years ago. So if you simply woke one of them up, so to speak, <laughs> um, we're speaking about an era uh, where people would invite people to dinner uh, through the mails for that day. Mm. Communications were different. Uh, transportation was different. The, the shape of the Federal Reserve is so much bigger now. The government's role in the economy is vastly more uh, involved, not only in the Federal Reserve, but in so many other agencies. They would recognize any of these things. They would probably be shocked that the, that the money was no longer, there's you know, dollar bills, say Federal Reserve notes, that they're not backed by gold. They would have a hard time with all of that. However, uh, when Warburg first came here, what horrified him was there was a small panic, and he couldn't believe that there was no central institution to back up the banks. And, and by the way, what would happen in these panics is the, the banks would, each one would want to protect its, itself, which is natural. Mm-hmm. So instead of lending money, they would all hoard their own reserves and, and actually accentuate the problem. You know, he thought this was just crazy. Mm-hmm. Were he to come back today or, say, in 2008, 2009, when this country, of course, experienced uh, a latter-day terrible crisis, and had he seen the Federal Reserve playing that role as lender of last resort, as backstop, as as a lender when none of the private institutions were willing or able to lend, that I think he would have gotten. And I think he and the other founders would have said, yes, this is the role that that we had in mind. And the point that I think your book makes so beautifully is that the Fed, like the Constitution, has become this sort of living organism that responds to evolving needs in evolving times. Um, I think readers will be struck by the similarities between our moment and the moment that produced this act in terms of growing inequalities, in terms of, you know, this pervasive sort of suspicion and wariness of government. So given the kinds of compromises, given the kinds of statesmanship that produced this act, are there lessons that we can take to heart now? Well, Warburg said he um, hoped that the Fed would become a monument in the United States, uh, much like the uh, great cathedrals of Europe. Um, and he said for that to happen, it had to be a bipartisan uh, institution. And that, that showed a great understanding of the American system for Warburg, who, as we recall, was a foreigner, because the Fed was passed essentially by the Democratic Party. Warburg himself uh, probably had more uh, empathy in general with the Republicans uh, after his uh, arrival here. But he recognized that institution, particularly one that, as you said, was going to evolve over time and have to deal with unforeseen challenges, such as quite soon the Great Depression and in our own day the the mortgage meltdown, it would need bipartisan backing and it would need to be accepted by um, 
the public at large and, and not be seen as, you know, just belonging to one or another party or faction. I think right now we're at um, one of the most delicate moments uh, on that score in the Fed's history because um, the the um, anti-centralist uh, tensions, uh, which in a sense are a legacy of the American Revolution, the, you know, were people who revolted against uh, a centralized uh, monarch in, in, in England. Those tensions particularly manifest in the Tea Party and, and I think in this election, in this rebellion, uh, against Washington, the, the the support for candidates who seem to have um, nothing in common except that they're Washington outsiders and so on, um, that redounds very much to the Fed's uh, unpopularity. And, and in fact, in public opinion surveys, uh, I believe it ranks uh, second lowest only to the IRS, um, not surprisingly. Um, the Fed's role in the last um, crisis, particularly the bailouts uh, with banks, uh, have made it uh, unpopular with you know a great many average citizens. It's quite a critical moment if the Fed wants to continue their candidates. Uh, Rand Paul, obviously being one who would like to either abolish or radically uh, modify its charter and their bills in Congress that would that would undo a lot of the work of um, the founders in 1913. So I think Janet Yellen uh, and Co. really have their work cut out for them right now. Okay, thank you so much, Roger. Again, the book is America's Bank, reviewed on this week's cover. Thank you so much. Thank you. So we're joined now by Alexandra Alter with Publishing News. Hey, Alexandra. Hey, Carl. What's going on? So appropriately for a podcast about books, I'm here to talk about books that are based on podcasts. This is apparently a new thing. (laughs) There is a novel that came out this week called Welcome to Nightville. Some of our listeners might be familiar with the podcast, which is incredibly popular. Um, It started in 2012. Over the first year, it got a few hundred thousand downloads. And then the second year, for reasons they can't quite explain, the audience exploded and they Mm. got in a single month 8.5 million downloads. So this is a fictional podcast, which is unusual in the world of podcasts. It's sort of set in um, a creepy desert town where every conspiracy theory is real. But when you're listening to it, it sounds like a regular community news program. (laughs) Um, So there'll be PTA meeting announcements and um, various community news. The mayor will say something. The community council will say something. And then something very creepy or odd will happen, like a hooded figure will show up in the dog park. People are told never to go to the dog park because you'll get killed. Um, Is it campy? Like if you haven't listened to the show before, what's the feel? The feel is... um, well, it was described to me very well by the narrator, Cecil Baldwin, who's an actor and has this deep radio voice that basically it's like David Lynch meets NPR. Mm. So <laughs> that's kind of the vibe. And um, actually, I think we might have an excerpt of the audiobook, which is also narrated by Cecil Baldwin. So fans will appreciate that. The only pawn shop in the town of Nightvale is run by the very young Jackie Fierro. It has no name, but if you need it, you will know where it is. This knowledge will come suddenly, often while you are in the shower. You will collapse, surrounded by a bright, glowing blackness, and you will find yourself on your hands and knees, the warm water running over you, and you will know where the pawn shop is. You will smell must and soap and feel a stab of panic about how alone you are. It will be like most showers you've taken. 
you wouldn't think it would translate so well to the page. It's so much of it is in the performance, but it really does. So this novel that came out this week is set in the same town, and it was written by the co-creators of the podcast. Um, Jeffrey Craner and Joseph Fink. Mm -hmm. So they created this whole longer narrative um, that has a lot of inside jokes and Easter eggs for fans, but stands on its own. And their publisher, Harper Perennial, has acquired three more books from them, including a second novel and two books of the scripts of the show that will be illustrated. So I, I thought this was interesting just because we've seen so many YouTube to book That's right. phenomenon. We've seen Twitter to book. We've seen Tumblr to book. Yeah. Blog to book is like old hat. Yeah. Um, but podcast to book is kind of new and it makes a lot of sense. It does because it's still like an intimate thing, right? When you listen to a podcast, it's somehow yours. You know, it's in exactly. your ears. When you read, it's sort of an intimate experience. Yes, the fans are very um, connected to mm -hmm. the narrators or the hosts. A lot of these interview shows are also getting their own books, like Mark Maron, who's That's a really right. popular comedian. He even interviewed President Obama earlier this year. He has a book coming out based on those interviews. Yeah. There's a serial book coming out. Uh, serial was like the most popular podcast in history. And so a family friend of the person who was accused who the podcast was based on is writing her own book. She has her own podcast. Yeah. So are we next, Alexandra? I'm I'm talking little... to agents. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I think the podcast that's already based on books is a little bit harder to adapt into its own book. We'll but find we could, a way. We'll find a way. I mean, hey, there's an audience out there. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. So we're joined now by Scott Anderson, the author of the best-selling Lawrence in Arabia, who in this week's issue reviews Doomed to Success, the U.S.-Israel relationship from Truman to Obama by Dennis Ross. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, Pearl. So first of all, tell us a little bit about Dennis Ross and why, as you say in your review, you approached his book with a degree of, quote, morbid curiosity. <laughs> well, Dennis Ross has been central to American foreign policy, especially in, in the Middle East mm -hmm. and, and with Israel uh, through four recent administrations. And he's also been involved in, in peace negotiations in, in the region, especially between the Israelis and the Palestinians for a lot of that time, and even even prior to that mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. um, my comment about the morbid curiosity, I first started reporting from Israel and Palestine in 1985. Periodically going back over the years, I feel that nothing really has changed. Mm -hmm. I hear the same arguments the same defenses of, of positions that I, that I heard 30 years ago. I say in the piece that, you know, I've, I've often wondered if there could be any job worse than being a journalist permanently posted in Israel. And then it occurred to me, well, yeah, actually being a, a, yeah. a, a peace negotiator, that, that would yeah. be worse. So that's, that's how I came around to Dennis Ross. Yeah. I mean, so the core of the book seems to be that, you know, this sort of intractable situation is because the U.S. functions under a certain group of core misapprehensions right. when it comes to the Middle East. Um, what are some of these? Ross's main points, and, I, and I, I'm rather in agreement with him, is that uh, we've always had this apprehension that if we get too cozy with Israel, mm -hmm. that we're going to alienate Arab nations. As a result, there's always been this tug of war between people you uh, worry about repercussions in the Arab world if we're too close to Israel. And Ross's point, uh, which I agree to to a point, is that those fears of repercussions uh, have never really been borne out. That neither administrations that get very close to Israel, they do not suffer the repercussions from the Arab world that are feared. Uh, on the flip side, uh, administrations that try to make an overture to the Arab world, they they don't see the rewards mm. that, that they are expecting from the Arab world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And but you also do point out in your review that some of these misapprehensions can seem so 
just bafflingly obvious. Right. For example, that Arab nations are more concerned with parochial local issues than right. with the fate of Palestine. So why haven't these misapprehensions, which, as you say, have been circulating for so long, ever been challenged or corrected? Right. My feeling is that this is this all really rather self-evident. Yeah. But it doesn't take away from what I feel is, is the core issue. When you're talking about an American administration, at least going back in my lifetime, that is very close to Israel or not as close, it's, it's still within a very narrow bandwidth. Mm. And so I think it's a, a bit untested what the reaction would be in the Arab world mm. if any American administration was seen to have a truly even-handed policy. I've, I've, I've spent time in the Middle East for the past 30 years. Mm. And I've yet to meet any Arab um, or Muslim, left, right, progressive, fundamentalist, who's ever said that they thought the United States had an even, a quote, even-handed policy towards the, the Arab-Palestinian issue. The United States has always been seen as, as very close to Israel. With certain administrations, the Carter administration specifically, um, but it, also the first Bush administration, less so, but still within a, a, a rather narrow bandwidth. Yeah, but we, we didn't start out so cozy, did we? No. So what brought us closer together? I think that a lot of it happened with the Cold War, the, the division of virtually every region in the world into you know, either you know, the American camp or the Soviet camp or, or the independence. I think it really ex- accelerated after the 67 war when Israel showed itself to be the most powerful you know, military force in the region. A lot of the closeness started for as part of this, the larger Cold War issues. Mm-hmm. Now, are there clear heroes and villains that emerge in Ross's account? <laughs> he clearly has a very low opinion of Yasser Arafat. He, mm-hmm. he feels that Arafat was, was, as do many people, that Arafat walked away from the best deal the Palestinians had ever been, been offered uh, under the Clinton administration. He also has a very low opinion of Yitzhak Shamir, the mm-hmm. Israeli prime minister. Uh, he was, he's clearly very close to the first President Bush, and I, and I think that Bush clearly had a lot of problems with uh, with Shamir, and I, I think Ross, as a result, did also. Uh, I, if, as far as a hero, <laughs> I mean, the, certainly the, the most colorful personality that comes across in the book is uh, James Baker, yeah. uh, Bush's uh, Secretary of State. It was rather refreshing that at times, it, several times, Baker would just just lose, he just blow up. He would just lose patience with all the nitpicking and haggling that both sides constantly did. Every yeah. time, there, anytime there was any little overture, any movement towards some, you know, the beginning of the beginning of the beginning of a, of a possible solution, both sides would just throw all these impediments in mm. the way. And 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 Baker, yeah, I make the comment, you know, he had the good sense to, to periodically lose his patience over it all. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I have to ask, because, I mean, this isn't a history necessarily of peace efforts, as you point out in your review. You know, it's a, it's a history of diplomatic wrangling. So who is the audience for this book? It's a very detailed and, and rather slow going book. I mean, I think that for people who really want to know the history of, of the, the evolution of American policy towards Israel, mm-hmm. I think they would find it interesting. I mean, it is, it's a very deliberative book. I don't know how much of a light it casts on a way forward. Mm. Yeah, at the, at, in his conclusion, he, he makes the comment that uh, one thing that the Israeli, a, a Israeli government could do um, to, to build confidence that truly wants uh, a peaceful settlement with the Palestinians is to limit new developments in, in the settlements on the West Bank to those settlements that, they, that Israel thinks are going to be part of Israel in, in an eventual peace settlement. That, to me, that strikes me as, as a rather 
well, a rather slender reed to, to pin one's hopes on. It's indicative of just how frozen yeah. the whole process has become in the region. I mean, if that is the if that is the overture that's going to lead to to something, um, I mean, maybe he's an incurable optimist because I, I don't I don't really see that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't see the Palestinians going in the streets and saying, "Hey, Israel really does want a settlement here." Mm-hmm. So President Obama and uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu are due to meet right. on November 9th. And uh, I was wondering what we can expect. Are these talks doomed to succeed? or <laughs> I think they're doomed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they're doomed to succeed. The little wild card that's just come up very recently are, are now the, the stabbings that have been taking place uh, in Israel. Fears in some quarters that we're headed into a third intifada. Mm-hmm. I think that the Netanyahu government in particular, but but uh, is, recent Israeli governments in general, uh, are very quite sanguine about the status quo. They now have a wall separating uh, the Palestinian population from the from the uh, Israeli one. So there's not an awful lot of pressure uh, among the Israelis to push for any sort of peaceful settlement. On the contrary, I think any Israeli prime minister now, they, they see tremendous political risk and potentially um, more than just political risk at trying to to forge a peace settlement. So I think there's there's virtually no uh, impetus on that side to push things forward. I think I think what you're seeing the the, the riots and the demonstrations you're seeing now in in Palestine is really a, a very logical result of the absolute paralysis that has been in the region for years now. Okay, thank you so much, Scott. Thank you. And that was Scott Anderson who reviewed Doomed to Success by Dennis Ross. We're joined now by Greg Coles with bestsellers. Hey, Greg. Hi, Paul. What's going on? On the um, fiction side of things, there are five new titles starting down at number 16, just sneaking onto the list. David Weber uh, continues his Safe Hold science fiction series. That's the one set uh, in the distant future, in the 31st century or something, with a book called Hell's Foundation's Quiver. Uh, it's kind of a science fiction fantasy series. Merlin makes an appearance. Um, I've never read any of them, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Then at number 14, Adriana Trigiani, who's known for historical novels, um, often about Italian immigrants or um, Italian-American culture, returns partly to that theme with a book set in the 1930s. It's really a Hollywood novel called All the Stars in the Heavens, but it does, uh, again, have an Italian-American former nun um, who is kind of personal secretary to the actress Loretta Young. And really the book is about Loretta Young's um, rumored affair with Clark Gable. Then at number 11, Stuart Woods continues his Stone Barrington series. This is the 35th book in that uh, series of legal thrillers. Uh, It's a book called Foreign Affairs, new at number 11. Then at number five, um, kind of the big literary book of the season, a book that's gotten a lot of attention um, by... Garth Risk Hallberg, um, who is also a critic, he's reviewed for us in the past. His book is called City on Fire. It's more than 900 pages. It's about New York City in the 1970s. And uh, Frank Rich reviewed it on our cover a few weeks ago. And reviews have been pretty positive of this one? For the most part, positive. People really like its kind of sociological sweep. Um, They like the um, character intimacy, the the real psychological depth that he goes into. There have been some complaints that it's too long. Mm -hmm. Um, Louis Menand, writing in The New Yorker, uh, started his review by saying to 
cut right to the chase. <laughs> it's like 400 pages too long. And no Merlin cameos. <laughs> and and yeah. Merlin does not appear in it. Um, we'll see maybe by the 35th book in the series. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah. That book makes its debut at number five. And then um, finally, a new number one this week, Nicholas Sparks returns to the list. Nicholas Sparks fans may know that his marriage broke up uh, after 25 oh, I didn't years. Know this. Yeah, back in January. So the guy who. Um, so he's kind of, been lying to us. <laughs> the guy who set the bar for romance and, and long-term uh, romantic prospects actually, yes, has been lying to us. <laughs> um, but it, it hasn't stopped him from writing romantic fiction. His uh, latest is a little bit of a departure for him. It's not just romance, but a bit of a romantic thriller. It's called See Me. Mm-hmm. New at number one. See Me is in See Me? <laughs> no, See Me, uh, two words, See me. Much I, more sparky and much more sparky. Uh, yeah, okay. as in, you know, please see me after class. Yeah. <laughs> and in nonfiction. <laughs> uh, in nonfiction, there are three new titles. Um, starting at number nine, a debut author named Declan Patrick McManus. Does that ring a bell with you? It doesn't, no. Uh, he's actually Elvis Costello, ah. b- born Declan Patrick McManus. He joins uh, the long list of singers and songwriters to have memoirs on the list. His is called Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Inc. new at number nine. Then at number eight, Bob Woodward uh, returns to the Nixon years, the Watergate years mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. broke his career wide open. Uh, this book is called The Last of the President's Men. It's a look at Alexander Butterfield, who was a White House aide back in those years. Uh, he's the White House aide who disclosed that Nixon had a whole secret taping system. Mm-hmm. And then uh, finally, also a new number one. Um, so new books at the tops of both lists this week. Brandon Stanton, uh, who is the Humans of New York guy, uh, he, he does that blog, and, and now a series of books um, of these photos that he takes, kind of candid photos of people around town, is back with a book called Humans of New York, colon, Stories. And it's more photos of New Yorkers. Um, this time he includes kind of long captions or anecdotes. Yes, like exactly. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's been going in that direction yeah. lately. Yeah. 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 So perhaps some Merlin? There probably are several Merlin-type characters in this one. Okay, thanks, Greg. Thanks, Parl. Thanks for listening. For more information, go to nytimes.com slash books. For The New York Times, I'm Parl Sagal. See you next week.